The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. First of all, what are you doing in the London Bureau? I am here to talk business with some people who uh, are running a very large rugby tournament called Rugby Sevens, and they would like me to consult a little bit on their music needs. Wait, wait a minute. When you score a goal in hockey... In Toronto, you're hearing Alan Cross picked music as the victory song. What would you play for rugby? I don't know. This is why I'm here. <laughs> After I'm done here, I'm on my way to Singapore to talk about music for, wait for it, yes, golf. <laughs> golf. Okay, rugby, I, I get, you know, big macho sport, lots of roughnecks, you know, a lot of high energy, a lot of violence. You can put that to music. But when it comes to golf, which I don't know that much about, other than that it's a walk well wasted if you're playing it with me, is that it's the kind of sport where the last thing you want is noise. So I have no idea what kind of musical accompaniment you could possibly provide the sport of golf, like men's golf. It's women's golf. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Everything you didn't know about virtual reality sex. And we're too grossed out or embarrassed to ask. The Daily Dot's Mike Weiner joins us with his first-hand experience of um, a brave new world. Spotify lists the top 10 tracks we're using to get in the mood. Number one is just 127 seconds long. And why bubblegum pop bands in Japan are jumping for joy over a carnal constitutional ruling. What is it about this show? Is he, we see us, uh, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a theme here. Opinions are like the Blackberry Bold. You find them everywhere, but nobody's impressed with them. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Who is it? It's the plumber. We went to the Consumer Electronics Show. I came back and I reported on the HTC Vive Pre, and I was blown away at the quality of this virtual reality technology and the leaps and bounds it's made in just the past couple of years. And the very first thing you asked me was... Is it good for porn? Right. Which is what everyone seems to ask me about. So I thought, let's just go straight to the source, because I did not in fact, have any experience whatsoever in that realm. You know, we're, we're there with a big camera crew and all that kind of stuff, and I highly doubt HTC was interested in showing off that technology. But it's always said that, that porn leads adoption rates for new technology. And, you know, I can see that with the VHS beta conversation. That's the one that always works. It worked with DVDs, too. Okay, DVDs, sure, yes. Um, I, I, people claim that my smartphone gets bigger and bigger, the screen, every year because we're using it for that kind of content. I don't know if I buy that, but because I haven't had any experience with this and it's always the first thing you ask about, I figured let's go straight to the source. Daily Dots tech columnist Mike Weiner uh, from Wisconsin. He's been doing tech for what, five years now or so, and he had a chance to answer all of the questions you had for me that I couldn't provide you. Or that you didn't want to provide. Mike, good to have you with us. I choose B. 
Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Giddy as a schoolboy as we might be at the prospect of adult entertainment in this device, you have learned that it is not all fun and games. It's really not the best device when it comes to porn, unfortunately. It really isn't. It's still kind of lacking in that regard. Now, I mean, there are there's there's plenty of content to be had on the device when it comes to porn. Let me let me just say right off the bat that I've primarily used the Oculus. I have the Oculus DK2, which is the second development kit, um, which is the closest device to the actual retail one that's coming out um, just shortly here for about six hundred U.S. dollars, which is by the way, insane. Well, it's $600 plus whatever the cost I can only imagine to power the goggles themselves. you got to have a pretty high-end PC, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, the Oculus has said that they're, they're targeting um, the hardware to require a PC of about between $800 and $1,000. Um, if you want to also play the games, you know, uh, going away from porn for a second and uh you know the, the high-end games on steam and whatnot we're talking well see now we've already lost alan right. yeah, yeah i'm kind of drifting off um, let's get to the good stuff please i've been married a long time i want to hear about this okay so 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 the porn let's just get straight to the straight to the porn um there's plenty of content out there right now when it comes to when it comes to virtual reality porn. There's a couple sites that do it exclusively. Um, there are a couple of sites that are kind of uh, you know adding it in to the stuff that they already do in terms of you know streaming porn. Um, unfortunately, the actual task of watching porn in virtual reality is far more cumbersome than you know your normal porn consumption which consists of you sitting in front of a computer monitor we're talking the headset we're talking uh the head tracking uh hardware um which is usually like a sensor that mounts on top of your monitor uh we're talking at least two or three software programs to get the porn up and running on your headset and then once you're actually uh, ready to consume your adult entertainment um there's the extremely awkward proposition of having your ears and eyes transported to a you know a virtual adult playground while your body remains behind sitting in front of your computer doing whatever it is you might be doing while you're watching your pornography now see this is where it gets interesting because your assumption is that that full 360 degree total immersion of any content whatsoever, let alone adult content, would be a positive thing. But it's not because? Well, I mean, let's let's be honest here. Most people don't watch porn just to watch it, right? Speak for yourself, people. <laughs> I'm there for the story and the plot lines. He's there for the articles. <laughs> if you're if you're taking care of any kind of stress relief on your end and you can't hear or see anything that's going on around you, you better hope you have a padlock between you and the outside world because <laughs> you know, any I mean, listen, I I'm 30 years old now, but I was a teenager. I remember having roommates in my 20s if i'm if i'm consuming any kind of adult entertainment any slight creak a floorboard uh, a step a a random you know house shift <laughs> will send me into a panic and when you have when you can't see if there's anybody around you and you can't really hear anybody around you you're basically left to just trust that you're alone in your room in front of your computer doing whatever it is you're doing. Yeah, the last thing you want is a tap on the shoulder unexpectedly. Oh, that that scarred me for life. 
This is exactly why we consult experts, because this is something that I may not have thought about. I had no idea, first of all, that there were websites dedicated to this kind of content in the first place. I thought we were still in the early stages. Oh, grow up, Michael. Come on. We just talked about how porn was being, uh, has always been on the forefront of technology. Of course there are. I'm reading his article here. He says that there were certain uh, movies and resolutions as high as 3,000 by 1,500. My God. Uh, you could see all kinds of things at that resolution. Uh, oh, you sure can. Okay, but the, the question to you is, is is from the experience angle of it, uh, first of all, I, 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 can only Im I can only imagine how weird it must have been to be getting a demo of this kind of content. Were, were you alone? Was it, were you in a room full of people? Like, so I've I've gotten some some eyes on demos of various virtual reality stuff at trade shows. I've been to CES a couple times, had that experience. Been to E3, um, never went into the porn aspect at these kinds of events. Um, I actually have an, uh, an Oculus Rift development kit at my house, and these sites, uh, you know, allow you to subscribe and download these videos right in your home. So I have experienced these in what you would presume to be the optimum uh, optimal setting in which you would want to enjoy pornography which is by myself in my office your office his home office right i work from home uh, oh home right. office right sorry <laughs> i'm sorry i should have clarified no listen hr on line three <laughs> <laughs> again we're, this is why we're consulting experts, because Michael and I do not have experience with this sort of thing. You have a young daughter at home. You have a wife at home. I have a wife and two dogs at home. So are you, are you married? But And a wife who I don't think I could justify a $1,500 purchase for this kind of content. But let, let me ask you this, though. Because it's got the head tracking, what happens if you turn 180 degrees? Do you see the camera guys behind you? <laughs> so... <laughs> So the thing about a lot of this content, um, especially the, one of the most prominent sites that's doing this type of thing right now, is it's called Virtual Real Porn. It's um, it's kind of a smaller site. They don't really do any content beyond the actual virtual reality stuff. Um, a lot of their videos aren't in full 360 degree. It's 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 being shot from uh, a camera rig that's mounted to the at one of the performers, shall we say? That's that's very sexy. I'm sure for all involved. <laughs> that's insane. See, now that's the whole other aspect of this is that when you, you like pornography itself is kind of voyeuristic by nature, right? It, you know, if you're watching a if you're watching a video on on one of these sites um, without the virtual reality aspect, you're watching two people or you know a half dozen do whatever they're doing in front of you. When you, when you add in the virtual reality aspect and one of the performers is directly interacting with what you are supposed to, you know, believe is yourself. It, it it's awkward in it. The actors themselves seem to be a little put off by the entire experience <laughs> as well. You know, there's, there's, a, it, it's, it's kind of, I never thought that somebody in a video could make me feel uncomfortable as though they were looking directly at me, but this is as close as I've ever come to that. Mike, great having you with us. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Thank you for taking one for the team. It's We really appreciate your hard work and uh, sacrifice in uh, seeking out the truth for this new high-end technology. No problem. Well, on the back of virtual reality adult entertainment, uh, Spotify figures they've got the musical soundtrack to your VR world. Maybe. 
Well, this is something that comes up every once in a while. There's always some sort of survey saying, here's a playlist of all the songs, the best songs to have sex to. I remember uh, there was an Australian radio group a number of years ago that came up with something like this, and they ended up voting closer by Nine Inch Nails as the number one sex song. If you know anything about the song and the lyrics of the song, you'll probably raise your eyebrows a couple of feet. But uh, <laughs> that's uh, I, I like seeing these things. Now, the reason I like them is because Spotify has all kinds of analytics. They, they're collecting big data with every single stream that goes by and what but how do they know we're enjoying each other's company on a biblical level at the time we're listening to their streaming music well we don't but here's what we do know is that people make up playlists with sex in the title ah so what they're able to do is go through all the thousands millions of playlists that are out there and analyze all the songs that are in these playlists and create a hierarchy of songs most popular songs in these playlists so this is basically what we have it's big data it's like a spreadsheet lots of parsing going on here and, and here are the ones that uh, they, they pick now what I find rather interesting is that uh, I don't think any of these songs are older than two years and very you know this comes from an Irish site so I'm wondering if this is Spotify Ireland or Spotify Europe because there's very little in the way of North American content on here <laughs> is, is it all river dancing well, it's not all river dancing, but it's certainly very British and Irish. Uh, you know, for example, the, the the number one song, and I'm thinking that they're listing these things in terms of uh, most frequent appearances on playlists, is by a very minimalist, sexy electronica band called The XX, and a song called Intro. Uh, the song is 127 seconds long. I'll let you draw your own conclusions from that. But then there are other songs from Hosier and the 1975 and Coldplay and um, a, a few others here that, uh, I frankly, I'm not, like, I don't know who Dylan Gardner in Let's Get Started is, and I've never heard of Zella Day before, but what, we'll post a link to this, and um, if, if you want to maybe line these things up in like a YouTube uh, playlist, I have actually checked and see every single one of these songs is available on YouTube. And uh, if you want to create a, a YouTube playlist and see if it works for you, you know, fill your boots. Because nothing gets your partner in the mood quite like, hang on, honey, I have to go to YouTube and create a playlist. <laughs> this Things are best done in advance. Little planning is required. Just a little, you might think. Yeah, I went through all of them, and they're all, you know, quite, uh, you know, lovey, sensual tracks that, like, uh, again, whatever floats your boat. But you have to uh, compare this, and I'll see if I can find the original Australian uh, list from, oh, God, it must be 20 years old. I'll see if I can find it, and we can do a compare and contrast situation. I'm surprised Yellow's Oh Yeah is not on oh, there. Oh, come on. Oh, please. <laughs> you know what? I'll tell you. Okay, two songs that should be on any of these playlists uh, is one is Stairway to Heaven, because let's think about the structure of Stairway to Heaven and how it all you know, how the song builds in tempo and intensity to a great crescendo and then ends. Uh, the other, and no, I've never heard anybody discuss this, but it's so obvious. If you go back and listen to Slow Ride by Foghat from their 1975 album, Fool for the City, it runs about eight and a half minutes. <laughs> Again, come to your own conclusions. What? Nothing. Keep moving. Uh, if, if you listen to it and... 
go along with it, you'll see that it works perfectly. My segue was to save Ferris Bueller's room. seen this on geeksandbeats.com our writer Derek Dresser has a report is reporting that a local artist is attempting to recreate the iconic room from the classic movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off I would be more impressed if they uh, created the bedroom from War Games but okay yes the bedroom from War Games included um, I think a PDP 11 and an Altair which are two very late 70s, early 80s computer systems that he used to hack in, which my wife was just telling me the other day, and I'm the nerd in the family, that apparently they remade War Games. Did you know this? No, they didn't win. Hang on, we'll look it up on the Inertron. Yeah. 2008, War Games, The Dead Code. Oh, the United States Department of Homeland Security is led to believe an American teen hacker playing a terrorist. Oh, so they updated it for, um... for... For the age of paranoia. Perfect. The John Hughes classic film with Matthew Broderick as Ferris Bueller has a fantastic bedroom that is just adorned. It's just, you cannot see the paint on the walls for the wall coverings of music-related paraphernalia on there. Not the least of which, as I can just see from this uh, screenshot that he's taken, uh, Simple Minds, his entire uh, bedroom door is covered in a uh, British rock uh, emblem, as it were. No, that, that bedroom was... was really iconic um, and again it was so in keeping with so many of the things that John Hughes did with teen culture back then he was a big fan of British alternative rock and thanks to John Hughes we got introduced to bands like OMD and uh, Simple Minds of course with Don't You uh, Don't You Dare uh, Don't You Forget About Me and Brian Ferry Brian Ferry New Order Dream Academy Yeah, so so it was a very subtle sort of, uh, hey kids, uh, here's the, what the cool kids like Ferris Bueller are listening to. Well, he's very popular, Ed. The sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, kids, they all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. So in 1986, the computer technology of the day included, uh, or the technology generally, the Emu Emulator 2 synthesizer. Yep. A Sony TV, a Carver M500T stereo amp. I think I have I have a Carver amp at home. And a red touchtone Northern Telecom phone made by Northern Networks. I was going to say Northern Telecom of uh, Brampton, Ontario. Exactly. And the equalizer was the audio source EQ1 stereo component that allowed him to give off the cough sound. That's right. Oh, you know what? I forgot all about all this. See? Oh, fantastic. Yeah, okay, all right. The computer that he used to hack into the school was an IBM 5160. Uh, okay. I think a 5160 might have been one of the very first computers I ever used. See? Rosalie Tremblay is credited with discovering Motown music 
at a time when Detroit radio stations were too racist to play so-called Negro music. Across the river in Windsor, Detroit, we had the Big Eight and Rosalie Tremblay introducing us to some really incredible music. Yeah, and if you go back into Bob Seger's career, there's a song called Rosalie, and that's about her. The legendary hit maker is being recognized at the upcoming Juno Awards in April. She started off at CKLW in Windsor as a switchboard operator, only to rise up to the role of music director and really change the tone of music radio for 20 years at least. At least. There was uh, CKLW, the big eight, ran out of Windsor at uh, 50,000 watts, reached 30-some-odd states and uh, was considered to be one of the most cutting-edge AM radio stations uh, of its era. And, and Rosalie was the music director, and she was the one behind it all, and she was picking out all these, these tunes. But this is back in the day when radio stations were not really connected with each other like they are today, where we have charts and uh, you know trade publications and all the rest of it. So if you were the music director of a radio station, everything that you added to the playlist was based on, on gut and feel and whatever else. You weren't consulting research. Researchers, you weren't consulting consultants, you weren't consulting any of these things. It was all about your gut. And Rosalie had a, a, a tremendously accurate gut. She knew exactly what, what was going to work with the, with the general public. And as a result, a lot of people from around North America would tune into CKLW to see what was going on. There already is an award given out every year at Canadian Music Week, uh, the Rosalie Trombley Award, which is given to uh, a notable woman in broadcasting. And uh, it's good to see that uh, things have gone up the ladder a little bit so that she's now being honored at the Junos. We've talked in the past about CKLW, the Big Eight in Windsor, Detroit. Um, we talked about how the news guys had to be just as high energy as the jocks. It's 1140. This is John Belmont, CKLW 2020 News. Congratulations, Detroit. You can be thoroughly ashamed of yourself. The 1973 homicide tool has reached a nice even 750. Details on the latest leveling from Police Sergeant Bob Bunning. You are summoned to report. It wasn't just Rosalie Tremblay with the Supremes or Bachman-Turner Overdriver Kiss being discovered by her. It wasn't just the news guys being as energetic as the DJs. They were unique and um, very forward-thinking in a whole bunch of different ways, not the least of which is they were the only radio station, and, and again, AM radio station, and you go under a bridge, you can't hear the station. They wired up between Windsor and Detroit so you could still get the signal while traveling under the river. Oh, yeah. It was an amazing radio station in its day. And, uh, well, AM radio stations aren't what they were, and they didn't have that kind of influence anymore. But uh, we've, we've, again, we, you know, I'll put some stuff up there from the Big Eight and you can hear exactly what it was like. And you can go to geeksandbeats.com uh, for Shane Alexander's article on the legendary hitmaker being recognized in the upcoming Juno Awards. So uh, stay tuned in April. Congratulations to Rosalie. Fantastic stuff. By the way, did you know that, uh, I guess it was 45 years ago, it was 45 years ago this month that the CanCon rules came in into effect in Canada. Canadian content, 33% of all music must be Canadian. Well, it was 30 at the beginning. Uh, there was a period of time, I seem to remember, went up to 33%. It's currently minimum 35, but a lot of radio stations acquired their license by promising 40%. Uh, it was 1971, after a number of years of lobbying, that uh, the Prime Minister allowed that the CRTC to say, okay, there is no Canadian 
music culture in terms of popular music. There is no Canadian music industry. Uh, everything is all foreign-owned. Um, we're experiencing this, experiencing this tremendous brain drain with everybody going south like Neil Young and uh, Joni Mitchell and Paul Anka. We need to do something if we're going to protect our musical heritage or build a musical heritage. So the Cancon rules came in, said that every, you know three out of every ten songs in your radio station overall had to be part of, of uh, had to be Canadian in origin. And a big part of that was for that for that whole impetus was the Big Eight because they were playing basically to an American audience. Well, they would give time checks that were American time checks because just on the other side of the river, it was a different time zone. No, 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 no. That's not true because Detroit is still Eastern time. No, no. At the time, it was. Oh, was in the in the very early days in the fifties and sixties, Detroit was on a different time zone. Oh. You listen to the time checks; they would give a one hour difference between Windsor and Detroit. Well, isn't that interesting? Crazy, huh? Oh. But to your point about the CanCon rules, that, that's what really gave uh, musicians like Gordon Lightfoot and Anne Murray um, the, the, the power that they had. You, know, I, we, you can blame CanCon rules for forcing Anne Murray down our, our, our throats back then. And today, the same thing for Nickelback. The same thing, but at the same time, it turned Canada into a, a worldwide musical powerhouse. And there was a powerhouse? lot of... Really? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we export far more music than we really should. Well, that's what I'm getting at. <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying. <laughs> uh, but, you like, know, well, for, for example, Celine Dion. I'll, I'll beat up on Celine Dion any day of the week. I just don't have the time for her. She totally rubs me the wrong way. Well, but Did you at, notice that, that we went wall to wall in Canadian media on the death of her husband? Should, and, and every media person I asked, why is our industry going nuts covering the death of Celine Dion's husband? And nobody seemed to care. I think if you were in Quebec, you would understand why uh, it, it, the the love story between Celine and Renee was legendary and and revolting, if you ask me. Well, let's okay, but they, the people are seeming to overlook that little creepy part. But the rest of it is is you know he helped her become this gigantic global superstar, and there, there was very other than the little creepy part that you would. Uh, alluded to there 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 was very little taint uh with that relationship it was just a wholesome super successful born in quebec story so i, I just don't get it because i don't listen to her I, I don't like her and therefore i just don't understand is what you're saying maybe that's what it is i i i don't know all right i'll have to trust you on this but by, by the way speaking of, of, of blaming canada what is this about justin bieber as a pawn of isis hey, when i publicly say i'm sorry Everyone will instantly forgive me And once they do that, I can get away with anything So once I said I'm sorry, I did bad I can't go back to being a pushback the ISIS thugs uh, have a very good propaganda arm, and they are very clever in the way they do some of their recruiting. And one of the things they used was a Justin Bieber hashtag to attract attention from the 74-odd million people that uh, follow Justin Bieber on Twitter. You ended up at a very horrific 15-minute ISIS recruiting video. And uh, it's hard to say exactly how many people were, were suckered in by this. Uh, but this is this idea of recruiting potential brides for ISIS fighters is really out of control. You know what they call them? No. They call them jihadis. Jihadis. 
Yeah, not kidding. So what they'll do is uh, they'll post pictures of good-looking ISIS fighters and hope that some young, impressionable, stupid kids will say, oh, he could be my husband, I could be his wife, I'm going to Turkey and then to Syria and then to ISIS. So it's like the terrorist version of the firefighter calendar. Exactly. That's exactly what we're talking about. And there's even jihadi, uh, I guess, short stories or romances. I heard, I was listening to the BBC the other day and I heard uh, somebody read a passage from one of these things. And it's it's like a Harlequin romance, except you insert, you know, jihadist fighter, you know, fighting for the glory of Allah uh, over you know, some standard bodice ripper stuff. It's weird. Justin Bieber's tied into this house, though? Again, what they did was they used this hashtag on Twitter to deliver this video rather surgically to 74 million Twitter followers. And there's really nothing that can be done about that. I don't I don't think so. Um, about ISIS or Justin Bieber, for that matter. Uh, for that matter, yes. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine. This is a GNB News Update. Co-producers Cole Novak and Daniel Greer are at it again, making sure that this show happens. We really do rely on the kindness of strangers or semi-strangers. Actually, there are strangers. I've never met any of these people. We just take their money. Uh, because this program does cost money to operate. There's equipment, there's domain hosting, there's time and effort and a whole bunch of other things. And even though you may be listening to us on the Bell Radio Network, we are not getting any proceeds from any of the commercials that you might hear. So we rely on your donations to actually help this thing keep uh, moving forward. So Cole and Daniel, thank you again for opening your wallet wide. We use Patreon, which the neat thing about that is that you can sponsor us on a per episode basis. If you sponsor us for 25 bucks, you become the co-producer. And just like Hollywood, you open your wallet. You don't actually lift a finger to do any work whatsoever. And we pocket your cash and put your name on the album art. We we also have interns, which is the world's worst intern program because a dollar an episode, you pay us to work on the show. Don't do any actual work. Mark Altasar, Mike McDonald, uh, Mark Laducer, uh, Laducier, La, or Laducer. No, Laducer. Uh, see, back back to me not listening to Celine Dion. Mm-hmm. Kevin Ryan and Mike Lee, among others, thank you so much for your support on the big show. Uh, also, if you uh, would like to open your wallet, but you'd want something in return, go to geeksandbeats.com, click on the swag store, and you can uh, get a miracle travel mug of traveling, which I just ordered for wifey because somebody swiped hers at work. I Listen, I'm surprised that we don't get more complaints of people sw- swiping these things because, all kidding aside, this is the best travel mug you will ever get anywhere on the face of the earth. I still have mine. It's a little banged up because I've dropped it when it was full a couple of times. By the way, and when I did drop it, not a single molecule of coffee came out of it. Um, but it's a, it's a little wobbly. I may have to get a, another one after I drop it another 15 or 20 times. This time last week, we were talking about millennials not as passionate about music as the kids of yesteryear. Hi, uh, it's Julia from Toronto. Uh, just a comment about the millennial story I listened to on today's podcast. Um, and I just wanted to say that I agree with Alan that um, millennials are definitely not passionate about music the way probably baby boomers are. Um, me being a millennial myself, I'm 32. Uh, I listen to music 
nine hours a day at, at work. I'm, really, I'm allowed to stream Spotify. And it's just not the same. Um, I imagine, I mean, music is just commodified. And, and yeah, it's, it's a shame. Uh, there are certain bands that I like and are, I can say, passionate about, but probably not to the same degree as earlier generations. So, yeah, just wanted to say that. And I love your show and keep up the good work. Thanks, guys. Bye. Yeah, I, I'm reading a book right now by a guy named Mark uh, Mulligan, uh, who's it's called Awakening the Music Industry in the Digital Age. And there's some really interesting stuff in there where he quantifies the musical consumption and the musical passion of people born after, well, the old school people uh, who used who grew up in an age of buying music. Then there was the transition generation, where the people who moved, who started buying music but then moved to digital downloads. And then he talks about the people who have never, ever known a world without free music. And uh, with, with, with the value of music being free or less, I know that's kind of weird, I, I just don't think based on what I've seen and heard because music is so commodified because music is, is so easily available it's just not valued as much when you had to save up money for on your paper route to get uh, to buy one album that you would have to go and purchase in the store it's 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 a different experience from being able to turn on YouTube and get any song you want anytime you want it Geeks and Beats update from about this time last year when we were talking about Casio preparing to release its first modern-day smartwatch. It did so at the Consumer Electronics Show this uh, past January in Las Vegas. And uh, Geeks and Beats writer Derek Dresser has put together the uh, sort of look back, a brief history of the smartwatch, pointing out that as much as these things that we now have on our wrists, courtesy of Apple and Samsung, are all well and good, Casio had started doing this sort of thing as early as the 1970s. I remember those early Casio watches. They were hideously expensive and they didn't work very well, but they and they still had the uh, the the red LEDs, but they were neat for the time. By the 1980s, those red LEDs were replaced with LCD displays, liquid crystal displays, and uh, the Casio C80 calculator watch really was the the go-to watch, but it did more than just crunch numbers. It had a calendar built into it. It had a stopwatch as well, and it could do dual time. So as a second timekeeper, you could you know keep track of, of, of the London markets, for example, mm-hmm. but outrageously expensive by today's standards. Oh, yeah. I would, if you were to factor in inflation, they'd be thousands of dollars. Yeah. The first true computer watch, though, belongs to Seiko. And unlike the Casio watches, the Seiko model Data 2000, uh, actually technically the D409, uh, was an actual wearable computer. It had one kilobyte of memory, <laughs> a Z80 processor. You could actually write and run basic programs on it, but because it was just this tiny wristwatch, there was an add-on uh, computer keyboard dock for it that would allow you to write the programs and run them on the watch. Isn't that interesting? You know what? I'm, I'm traveling with my Apple Watch for the first time. So I'm in London, and I have a meeting to go to tomorrow, and I'm going to use the watch to navigate me through... Uh, to Buckinghamshire Gate, and then I'm on my way to Singapore, and I'm going to use it there as well. It's actually kind of cool, um, except when you're in the air and you put your phone on airplane mode, it basically disables, you can't 
advance your, your watch ahead to the time zone in which you're traveling. The other thing you need to keep in mind, too, is when you take your watch, when you take your phone off airplane mode, because the watch automatically goes into airplane mode as well, you have to manually do that, too. It, it's not synced because clearly it, it's turned off the radio built into it. The radio built into the early Casio watches was something else that Dresser had pointed out, too. And not just radios for like Bluetooth type stuff, which we certainly didn't have back in, in the 80s. But we had radio. You actually could plug in headphones into the Casio radio watch. And that Casio Comlink watch became the basis for the watch used by Michael Knight in the TV show Night Rider. So that would be what, 1980, 81, uh, 86? 87. 87. Night Rider, a shadowy flight into the dangerous world of a man who does not exist. Yeah, because 87 was also the year the JP100 model watch came out with a heartbeat sensor, beating Apple by 29 years. With, with, a, with a chest strap or not? No, no, just built into the watch band itself. Really? I wonder how accurate that is. Uh, well, uh, I don't know. The 21st century, of course, today, um, before we got into the modern-day watches we know it, Palm OS uh, beat Fossil back in 2004. Fossil beat Apple by a decade. They had a, a Palm OS watch with 8 megabytes of RAM and a Dragon Ball CPU, and it used infrared wireless do you remember those days when you used infrared to communicate back and forth? Oh, God, yes. Poor battery life, shrinking palm market, and production problems had them kibosh it. But not before Casio beat others to the punch in the 80s, sorry, in the 90s, with a wristwatch camera. I don't remember that. Oh, see? There you go. Everything old is new again. Or new is old again. I wonder what the resolution in that camera was. Probably not very much. No. J-pop stars have won the right to have sex? Essentially. Are we bringing this whole show full circle? Yeah, well, we might as well. We started with porn, we'll end with uh, genuine sex. So when you are... It's hard to explain the Japanese pop idol experience. Basically, what you'll have is all these, or all these manufactured groups of fresh-faced young people who have a particular shtick about them. Uh, it could be just a wholesome song and dance group, but then there's another J-pop group I ran across recently that their whole thing is that they sing about hamburgers. But as you talked about last week with K-pop, Korean pop music that was used to torture the North Koreans, there, there seems to be um, the manufacturing of it has been taken to a whole new level with these kids. They like they live with each other, et cetera. Right. I mean, this is uh, pretty much a boot camp that goes on until they don't need you anymore. And f every aspect of your life is controlled. Uh, you know, your schooling, your your the gr your grooming, your everything, even to the point where in in, in Korea. Uh, 
if you need some plastic surgery, they'll arrange that. Same thing happens in, in, in Japan. Uh, if you are part of a, a J-pop group, you live a very, 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 very regimented life. And you're supposed to be, and this is one of the important things about J-pop, is that you're, part of your appeal is that you're extremely wholesome, great role models. There can't be anything scandalous about, about you or your behavior or your, or your life. So one of the things that they try to do with young people who are raging full of hormones uh, is, is to say, listen, you can't have a boyfriend, you can't have a girlfriend, you can't have sex. We do not need anything that may uh, taint your image in the, in the eyes of, uh, uh, of potential fans. Isn't this exactly why boys get into a boy band in the first place? Well, you would think... Uh, so this was challenged uh, in, in the courts in Japan, this, this idea of, of you not being able to enter a personal relationship while you're an indentured servant to one of these idol groups. Uh, and, and it came back from the court saying, that, hey, that's unconstitutional. You can't, you can't uh, stop a human being from having a relationship with another human being. Well, now we know where Oculus Rift is getting its adult entertainment demographic from. Yes, as a matter of fact, I think uh, it would be very popular with some of these uh, gadget happy country. You never know. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.